Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Blake McCullough, and I uh, am glad to be here this morning. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I uh, bring you greetings from your sister church, Mercy Hill, which is an olive branch, uh, which is where I serve, and uh, we are um, glad to, to be co-laborers with y'all. And uh, I'm looking forward to bringing the word to you this morning. Thank you to your uh, elders for allowing me to be here. Uh, If you don't mind, I'm going to begin by praying and then we'll get started. Our Father, you have revealed to us in your word that you are indeed God. That there is none other, that there is no one like you that you are the creator of all things, that you are the sustainer of all things, that you hold the world in your hands, that nothing happens apart from your sovereign power. And God, you have declared in your word that not only are you God, but that you are good. And that you have saved the people for your own possession. That from our sin you bought us, that you've reconciled us to yourself, that you've redeemed us, that you've made us rights, that you've justified us, you've adopted us into your family. And Lord, we can proclaim this morning together that we have joy not in any circumstance that we experience today, but in the reality that you are God and you are good and you have redeemed us and you've bought us. That Christ has risen from the dead and since he has risen we have life eternal. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that as we look into your word, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would encourage the saint this morning, that you would build us up together, that you would use your word to speak the truth to us so that we would be edified. And, Lord, this morning, if, if there is one here who is apart from you, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to convict them of their sin, of their need for a Savior. And that they would see that his name is Jesus and that he accomplished all righteousness so that we could be made right with you. And he rose from the dead after his death on our behalf so that we could have eternal life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mercy Hill, one of the things that we like to do before we read uh, our scripture in a a sermon uh, is that we read from our statement of faith about what we believe about the Scripture itself. And our statement of faith says that we believe these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Which is just a longer way of saying what we just said together. This is the word of the Lord. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to look at the discipline of grace that is Scripture intake, that's looking to the Scriptures, the word of God to us. And as I was preparing this week, I was reminded of John chapter 6. After Jesus had performed some some miracles in John uh, chapter 6, he he had walked on water, he had fed 5,000 people with just uh, some scraps, he began to preach. And he began to say, I am the bread of life. And in many ways, by saying that he was the bread of life, he was really just pronouncing an indictment on the people who were hearing, who, who didn't really care anything about what Jesus said. They just wanted their bellies to be full. And in many ways, he was indicting them that all they cared about was the temporal and they had no care for the eternal. And after, that, and after Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father, John records this interaction. This is John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This morning, as we approach the spiritual discipline of Scripture intake, of seeking God in the Scriptures, I'm convinced that our lack of Bible reading, our lack of Bible meditation, our lack of Bible memorization... It's not because we failed to believe the right things about the scriptures. 
I don't believe that our, our lack of reading and meditation and memorization is because we've failed to believe the right things about the Scriptures. It's not that if we just believed the right things about the Scriptures, maybe we would love them more. I don't think this morning that, it's, that we don't believe the origination and the profit of the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3 would tell us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I don't believe this morning that we are doubting the eternality of the Scriptures. That, Like Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't think this morning that we are doubting the power of the Scriptures. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't think this morning it's that we doubt the reliability of Scripture. That, As Jesus says in John 17, your Word is truth. I don't think this morning it's that we doubt the efficacy of Scripture. Isaiah 55 so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that, I, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This morning, I don't even think that we're, we doubt the sufficiency of Scripture. That as Peter would say in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And I don't think that our lack of scripture reading and memorization and meditation is because we just don't have enough practical hints and tricks for how to read our Bible or when to read our Bible or what to read or where to start. My argument to you this morning is that rather than any of those things, I think we need to be reminded, we need to be reminded of the giver of the scriptures. We need to be reminded of his glory. We need to be reminded of his power. We need to be reminded of the joy that comes from reading, studying, meditating, and memorizing the scriptures. And so that's my aim this morning. So if your Bibles are in Psalm 19, that's great. That's where we're going to be hanging out. In John 5, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. It's been said that preaching, much of preaching is reminding. And so my hope this morning is that uh, I can remind us that God has given us his written word for his glory and our joy and delight. And so at Mercy Hill, we have a, what we call a sermon in a sentence. And that's just the habit I've gotten in. And so if you're taking notes in your uh, worship guide there and you want a sermon in a sentence, it is this. He has the words of eternal life, communicating his glory and causing our joy. He has the words of eternal life, communicating his glory and causing our joy. And that's where we're going to head this morning. So if you're looking at Psalm 19, we see that this psalm that we've just heard read is a psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David. It's a psalm of David, and when, he, when it says it's to the choir master, it means it's supposed to be sung in the assembly. Like we have just done this morning, we've sung songs together. This psalm was meant to be sung together as the, as the body gathered. And it says, it's to the choir master, a psalm of David. And what is it saying from the beginning? It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the theme of Psalm 19 is that our God speaks, which seems to be uh, maybe a little bit redundant, right? We, we believe that our God speaks. But this is, this is what sets our God apart from any false or fake God who, who we might be tempted to go after. Our God speaks. Not only does he speak, he, he spoke the world into motion. He spoke to the prophets and he spoke through the judges and he spoke through Moses and Joshua. And he speaks through his word. But Psalm 19 gives us this, really this breakdown of two different ways that God speaks to the world. In verses 1 to 6, which we are not going to cover this morning, he talks about the ways that God speaks in the skies. The technical term that we use for this is general revelation. It's the reality that as you look out into the skies, you, you, you see the heavens, you see the skies, and what are they declaring? They are declaring the glory of God. 
That when you look at the sky above, it declares his, as verse uh, verse 1 says, his handiwork. But this morning, I want us to focus on verses 7 to 14, because not only does God reveal himself or speak in the skies, I, I think more clearly he speaks in the scriptures through his word, the technical term for that being special revelation. We have to ask before we get started is what what is David saying that the skies and the scriptures are communicating? Well, first, I think we've already seen in verse one, the heavens declare what? What are they declaring? The glory of God. So the, the skies and the scriptures are declaring the glory of God. But I don't think that's all. And I think this is where we we might miss out. Is that the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The scriptures are declaring that we have a glorious God, but they are not only declaring that our God is glorious. If you look at verse 5, he begins to talk about the sun in verse 5, and he says, And the sun which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. The skies and the scriptures, David is arguing in Psalm 19, Not only communicate God's glory, but they communicate God's glory for our joy. And so this morning, as we're reminded of the glory of God in the scriptures, I want us to see three things. And so if you want, if you're taking notes and you want a a roadmap, um, I don't have points on the screen and that's totally my fault. So I'm going to give them to you really slow right now. The first is the wealth of the scriptures. We're going to see that in verses seven through nine, the wealth of the scriptures. And then second we will see the worth of the scriptures in verse 10. So 7 through 9, the wealth of the scriptures. Verse 10, the worth of the scriptures. And then in verses 11 to 14, we will uh, see finally the work of the scriptures. So verse 7 through 9, the wealth of the scriptures. Verse 10, the worth of the scriptures. And verse 11 through 14, the work of the scriptures. So let's jump in. Number one, David shows us the wealth of the scriptures. What is the nature and the function of scripture intake? What's the point of reading our Bibles? Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. As gloriously as David describes the skies in Psalm 19, 1-6, there is a word that he uses to describe the scriptures that he leaves left unsaid about the skies. And it's the word perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. While the skies declare the glory of God and they do an excellent job at it, while the the heavens are proclaiming how glorious he is and how we can actually derive real joy from seeing the glory of God in the skies, one does not look to the skies to understand the depth of God's character. While the skies do show us the eternal nature of God, the the divine power that he has, they fall short. But thankfully, David says, there's, there's something greater than the skies. There's something that is shouting at us more than the skies, and it is the scriptures. David places a greater weight here on the scriptures because of the wealth that they contain. Now, my real job for money is not to be a pastor, but to be an English teacher. And so I hope that you don't mind me kind of getting nerdy about grammar real quick. So if you look at verse 7 through 9, this is what we call in the English world when we're studying Shakespeare or whatever, and you probably know the phrase, parallel structure, right? So parallel structure is all throughout the Psalms. It's when you have this this, uh, group of words or group of sentences that match one another. And what, what happens when you see parallel structure is you automatically think, okay, those things mean similar things. If they're parallel, they, they must mean similar things. And so we see this parallel structure here. We have the blank of the Lord, all of these synonyms for law or for his word or for the scriptures. The blank of the Lord is blank. It's describing it. So what is it? And then 
the next phrase is always what it does. So we see the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? Make wise the simple and so on and so forth. And I want you to notice here that he uses these words. He uses law. He uses the word testimony. In verse 8, he uses precepts and commandment. Verse 9, he uses fear and rules. In verse, um, and throughout there, we see that these are different words, but they all seem to be talking about the same thing. Now, if you look there, you might be confused at first because it says the law of the Lord is perfect. Which is true. We see God's law, and especially in the Old Testament, he's given his law, and because it comes from him, that it's perfect. But it can't just mean, it can't just mean the law, and I'll tell you why, because in verse 7, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the reality is the law of the Lord has never revived a soul. What does the law do? And we look at the law and we see that it says, have no other gods before me or do not craft for yourself idols or honor the Sabbath day or honor your father and your mother. What do we look at that law and we say, I am, I am falling short. The law crushes the soul. And so David must be talking about something more than just the Mosaic law, the law of the Ten Commandments, or the law that he gave to the people of Israel. He must be talking about something more than that. And I think this parallel structure keys us in that he's not just talking about the law, he's talking about the entirety of the Scriptures. That it's all of it. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules... Psalm 1-2, which I understand you guys have studied recently, says his delight is in the law of the Lord. And we take that to mean the entirety of God's declaration. And so this text seems to be speaking of the entirety of the Scriptures. And you see this juxtaposition here, and I think this is, this is fascinating here, that, that David uses the skies and the Scriptures in the same psalm. It's almost like David is saying to his audience, do you think that the skies are beautiful? Do you think that the stars shout God's praise? Do you think that the sun exclaims his glory? He says the beauty of the sky is homely compared to the beauty of the scriptures. The stars feel like a whisper compared to the shout of the Lord's testimony. The joy proclaimed by the sun is nothing next to the joy expressed in the scriptures. He says, yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the law of the Lord is perfect. But I think we're guilty, maybe, of glossing over even just this first phrase, the law, whose law is it? It says the law of the Lord. And in your Bible, that Lord is probably in all caps, as it should be. It doesn't just mean a master. It means that the, the scriptures are beautiful and the scriptures are glorious because they are the words of the Lord, of Yahweh. More than just a master, the Lord and sovereign ruler over all, the God who has always kept his covenants, the God who created all things and sustains all things, the one who rules forever and created and sustained everything that we see. This is his scripture. Why take the time to stop there? Because we need to know, if, if, if we are to stake our lives on this word, we need to be reminded that our God has spoken to us. He has given us his words. This is where the scripture derives its authority. This is how I can say, thus says the Lord, because he gave it to us. 2 Timothy 3, which we read before, said that it is God breathed. Second Peter 1 says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word, this isn't Deuteronomy, this is 1 Thessalonians. When you received the word of the Lord, you accepted it from us, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Deuteronomy 8.3 says man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. David reminds us here at the beginning, this is not just some other word. This is not just some other law that has come down. This is the word of Yahweh. It is his word. 
Matthew Henry said, The psalmist gives an account of the excellent properties and uses of the word of God. In each of these sentences, the name Jehovah or Yahweh is repeated. And it's no vain repetition, for the law has its authority and all its excellency from the lawmaker. This is his law, the Lord's law, Yahweh's law. And I want to pause there because we look around in our world and so many people, whether it's in the face of tragedy or in the face of difficult circumstances, how often have I heard the sentence, I wish God would speak to me. I wish he would just tell me something. And the reality is he has. John Piper said, and it's kind of humorous, do you want to hear God speak? Read the Bible out loud. God has spoken in his word. It is the law of the Lord and it is Perfect. And I want to break these verses down really in two ways in verses 7 through 9. We see that the scriptures are trustworthy in what they are. So they are perfect. They are sure. They are right. They are pure. They are clean. They are true. But not only are they trustworthy in what they are, they are effective in what they do. And so what does it mean that they are trustworthy in what they are? It says the, the word And uh, Spurgeon said, the word is perfect in all its parts and perfect as a whole. It's a crime to add to it, treason to alter it, and felony to take from it. He says here that the word is perfect, which carries the idea of being blameless, that there is nothing wrong with it. He says that it is sure, that it's confirmed, that there's nothing in it that's not true. He says that it is right, which means that it is straight. It leads you in the right path. He says that it is pure. It's clean. It's unmixed with any evil. And he says that it is true. It's firm. It's faithful. It's righteous altogether. And we should not be surprised because what does he say? He says it's the law of the Lord. And all of these things are embodied in our God. And so the question is, why is it important that we have a steady intake of the Bible? Why would we be spending time talking about why we need to hear from the scriptures Why we need to meditate on them and memorize them and study them and dive deep into them. Because the reality is, is that we are all being discipled by something. Either you're being discipled and probably all at the same time, we're being discipled by Facebook or by Netflix or by the people we work with. We're being discipled by all kinds of different powers and streams of thought. Our days are busy, our schedules are crowded, we make a myriad decisions every week. We experience highs and lows, we experience joys and heartbreaks, and through those, something or someone is discipling us. Why not let our families be discipled by the perfect, sure, right, pure, true, righteous word of God? When I was in, uh, in middle school, I guess it was around the middle school time, uh, one of my favorite things to do, I was kind of a strange kid, uh, was I really liked to go to Lifeway. Now, those are, they don't exist anymore, sadly, uh, or maybe not sadly, I don't know. Um, but they don't exist anymore. Um, but I really thought it was really cool to go to Lifeway with my, like, $12 and buy a T-shirt with, like, a funny Christian saying on it, right? And I had a bunch of them. Right? I had one that was like the John Deere logo, but it said John 3.16. Um, I had a bunch. But there was one I wanted that I never saved up enough to get. And I'm glad I didn't. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But this shirt just said life would be easier if we all just read the manual. And it had a picture of a Bible, like in the background. Life would be easier if we all just read the manual. Now the reality is that... A lot of people look at Christians and they say, okay, well, this, it's just that book that just tells them what they can't do, what they can do, and what they should do, what they shouldn't do. And so it's like a manual. Just like if you're putting together some furniture, you have a manual, just like a map if you're, if you're going on a trip. And I, and I worry that as believers, we think that that's the reality. That it's just, well, it's just, it's just telling me what to do and what not to do and 
who to be and who not to be and what maybe I should try to do and what I should try to stay away from. But the reality is, is that these, these are more, than, this is more than just a, a manual that you get for a piece of furniture from Ikea. This is a true word. It's the true word. It is the pure word. It's the clean word. The words of eternal life given to us. Peter would say it this way. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The scriptures are pure. There's no error. There's no risk of leading us astray. The scriptures are milk. They are appropriate for life and godliness. When Peter says long for the pure spiritual milk, he's not saying long for the kind of the easier things, which is sometimes what milk is used as in the New Testament to say, well, milk is the easier things you need to grow up into meat. Peter's not saying that. Peter is saying there is something appropriate for a baby. You don't put Dr. Pepper in a baby bottle. You put milk there. He says there is something appropriate for life and godliness. What is the appropriate thing for life and godliness? The pure spiritual milk of the word. The scriptures shout that God is good and that God is glorious, that he made us, that he saved us, that he is holding us. And so when we look to the scriptures, we understand that they are trustworthy and right in what they are. But not only that, we see that they are effective in what they do. What does it say that the scriptures do? It says they revive the soul. They make wise the simple. They rejoice the heart. They enlighten the eyes. They endure forever. They're righteous all together. The first one says that they revive the soul. Literally, the word there means convert. Romans 10 tells us this truth. So faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. The scriptures convert the soul. The Father has used the word to draw men to himself. What other text has this power? We haven't gathered around this morning to discuss early English literature or to discuss Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn. We've gathered to discuss the one text that can actually revive the soul. Not only does it revive the soul, he says that it makes wise the simple. I love this, this text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 26 to 31, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The scriptures, Paul says to Timothy, are able to make you wise for salvation. Well, if the scriptures are the things that make us wise, and I think one principle for us as we confront the scriptures, as we desire to live our lives in them, to study them, to memorize them, to meditate upon them, is to come with humility. To understand that we are the simple. That he is making us wise with his scriptures. Jesus said in Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That this lifelong process of us getting into the scriptures, of us reading them, slowing down and studying them, mining them for the gold that is there, meditating upon them, memorizing them, posting them wherever we can so that we're reminded of the truth of God. This is a lifelong process, and it's a lifelong process that as the perfect law revives us and the sure testimony makes us wise, it's not something that happens by accident. We don't go to bed with the Bible under our pillow hoping that we'll learn it by the morning. We don't go to the scriptures for advice and just you know, flip to a random page and see what it says. The scriptures are able to make one wise. They're powerful to make one wise. And it depends on our diligence 
to look into them, to build our lives there. But this is where we get to the joy, because in verse 8 it says the precepts of the Lord are right. And what do they do? They rejoice the heart. How do the scriptures rejoice the heart? I think this is uh, an important question, and it's foundational to us understanding why we go to the scriptures as a spiritual discipline. Why wake up that extra 30 minutes? Why put Bible verses on flashcards and look at them on your lunch break? Why write that Bible verse on your bathroom mirror? Why memorize a chapter of scripture? Why would we do any of that? Because the scriptures disclose the person and plan of the Lord to us. Through the scriptures, the Lord, we, we see that the Lord is cultivating a peculiar people for his own possession. We see that he heard the groanings of the Israelites in Egypt and he rescued them. We see that he faithfully preserved David and promised him that a king would forever sit on his throne. We see that he has formed a church and that he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. We see that he has provided secure salvation for that church through his son's death, that he raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places, that he gave us the spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, and that we will reign forever and worship around his throne. And we look at those words, and all that we can cry is, our God is glorious, and he is our joy. What else can we do but to experience Exclaim with Paul, oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He's glorious. He says not only do, do, do they rejoice the heart, the end of verse 8 says that they enlighten the eyes. Why do we need the scriptures? Because the, the eyes that we have are often darkened either by sin or by our circumstances? Why is it important that we read and study and meditate on and memorize the scriptures? Because our eyes can be darkened by our sin. We need the scriptures to confront our sin. Just like the prophet Nathan came to David and confronted him with his sin and said, you are the man. We need the scriptures to confront our sin, to enlighten our eyes. We need the scripture to enlighten our eyes when our eyes are darkened by our circumstances. We need the scripture to encourage us in our pain. We need the scriptures to humble us in our pride. The scriptures enlighten the eyes. Psalm 119.24, David says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. In verse 108, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Show me a Christian separated from the scriptures and I'll show you a Christian who is discouraged or backslidden or both. But not only do they enlighten the eyes, he says finally in verse 9 that they endure forever. They'll never change. They'll always be true because they flow from God himself. And not only do they endure forever, they're righteous altogether. And the reality is, is when we look at what David says, it counts for all of Scripture, and he says the Scriptures in themselves are righteous altogether. That what God has decreed is righteous, period. We live in a culture, and much of which is claiming to be Christian, that tempts us with that age-old question that is from the pit of hell. Did God actually say that? Did God actually say that that is sin? Did God actually say that you have to do that? Did God actually say that this is, this is the, the reality? And we must know what he says to be able to answer that question. So we see the wealth and glory here of the scriptures. We see their wealth. But number two, quickly, we see their worth. If you look in verse 10. The worth of the scriptures, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honey gold, the honeycomb. What is the value of scripture intake? I want to I point out that this is not hyperbole. David's not just kind of out in la-la land. He is, he is telling the truth here when he says that the word of God is more desirable than gold. More desirable, not even than just gold, but much fine gold gold. He doubles down. He says, I know what you're thinking. I'm being a little dramatic. No, the word of God is more desirable than even 
gold. He says, picture it. You're given the option between a pile of the most valuable substance that you can think of or the word of God. And David says, I take the word every time. And I think in our 21st century world where we have the Bible on our phones or it's at the click of a button in Google or we have 17 copies at our houses that we've become accustomed to having the whole Bible in our hands. So much to the point that we could be guilty of taking it for granted. For much of Christian history, it was, it was only the rich or the leaders who had the Bible. We didn't even get the first complete English translation until 1384, and it wasn't widely circulated because it was handwritten. It wasn't until the printing press came in 1450 that we started to get a wide circulation of the scriptures, and the whole Bible in English was, wasn't printed until 1525, which means that for much, the majority of Christian history, God's people did not have a copy of his word in their homes, much less in their pocket. And so the question is, well, how, how did these people practice the spiritual discipline of scriptural intake? Have you ever thought about that? How did they do it? The reality is that they, comp- they committed parts of it to memory. They attended Lord's Day worship like we are doing t- today. They heard the preaching of the word. They heard the public reading of the word. They meditated on those scriptures. They discussed them in their homes. May we never get so comfortable with having God's completed typed out word that we fail to truly see its desirability that it is more desirable than even fine gold but not only does he say that in verse 10 he says more to be desired today than gold even much fine gold but also sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb why would David compare God's word to honey David goes on to argue that the scriptures are more delightful, more pleasurable than the finest taste that we can think of. And this is the glory of the scriptures. Every time we open them, we open them to a feast that is ready to be enjoyed. We didn't have to cook it. We don't have to put it together. We open it and it is ready for our enjoyment. Psalm 34, 8, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And the question is, like, this is all great in theory, but what does this look like? What does this look like in Horn Lake, Mississippi in the summer of 2021? What does that look like? It looks like pouring over the scriptures. It looks like studying them. Experiencing our God in the Bible. It looks like realizing and remembering that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That we are blessed if we take refuge in Him. And so we pour over these scriptures. Not only do we pour over them, we meditate on them. Now meditating is a word that uh, we often like to say that our words get hijacked, right? Good words get taken and people give meanings to them that aren't real. Meditating is one of those words. When you think of meditating, often in our world, the idea of meditating is emptying our minds. But the scripture, when it speaks of meditating, it means filling. It's like a cup that you fill to the brim to overflowing. Meditating on the scriptures, pouring over and stopping on each word. The law of the Lord is perfect. Stopping and thinking full what each word means. It looks like memorizing. And you might say, you know what, I, I don't have a great mind. I don't have a great memory. There are, we have songs, right, that are directly straight scripture. It's a great way to memorize scripture. We've memorized so many things. I have memorized like 47 email passwords. We can memorize some scripture. And I really do think, and I, 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 really, I really mean this when I say this, we can memorize more scripture than we think we can. We can memorize longer sections than we think we can. Why would we memorize scripture? Because we can remember it in temptation. We can provide it as advice. But I think a lot of our scripture intake, and I think this is the the danger of uh, 
of the individualistic world that we live in is that much of our scripture intake is enjoyed together in community. That you have missional community to discuss these truths. That you have to eat with somebody, you can discuss the truths with them. That you have times in your day when you're with others. Why not be known as people of the book? As those who love God's word because we love God. Of those whose joy and delight is in the scriptures. Because honestly, a joy and a delight in the scriptures, I, I think, is a clear sign of the Spirit's work in our hearts. If you see someone loving the scriptures, then we clearly see their love for the God of the scriptures. And I think finally, as we close, verses 11 to 14 give us the work of the scriptures. What are the effects of a healthy diet of the scriptures? I think the first effect is warning, if you look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. I love this about the scriptures. God is exceptionally clear in his word. In the Old Testament, you read through it and it says, all right, Israel, if you do this, then bad things will happen. If you don't do it and you do the right thing, then good things will happen. And that's what happens. God is clear in his word. He says, do this and live. Don't do this and don't live. He's clear in, in the Gospels. It says, repent and believe. There's clear warnings that if you do not turn from your sin, that you, you will die in them. The epistles give us clear warnings. The wages of sin is death. That the times are evil. The Scriptures have not left us in the dark about what to avoid and what to pursue. By them is your servant warned. It was said that a certain man planned to murder the reformer Martin Luther. But when one of his friends found out, this friend painted a portrait of the man who was to murder him and sent it to Luther so that he would be on the lookout. And so that he would know if he saw this man that he should run or retaliate. This is what the scriptures do for us. The scriptures paint a picture of what happens when we are apart from Christ. The, the scriptures paint a picture of what happens when we are in Christ. He says, it says, flee from this, pursue to this. But not only that, if you look in verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. So the power of the, the scriptures is warning, but also in keeping them, there is great reward. Ultimately, we know that our ultimate prize and our ultimate reward is Christ himself. But I also want to see that there are practical rewards that we get from obedience to Scripture. If we obey the command to gather together, we get the reward of sweet communion with each other. If we obey the law to put idols to death, we receive the reward of our ultimate satisfaction being found in Christ. If we obey the command to humble ourselves, we'll ultimately enjoy the reward of having harmony with one another. There are legitimate secondary rewards that we have from obedience to the scriptures. How can we obey what we do not know? But here's the reality if you look at verse 12. Sure, the scriptures warn us and the scriptures provide rewards. But there's a problem because we cannot keep his commandments perfectly. How can we receive the rewards if we can't com completely keep his commandments? Look at verse 12. David acknowledges here, and what I, what I think is the climax of this whole psalm, his need. Who can discern his errors? To be read, who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. Who can discern his errors? David looks at the scriptures and he looks inside his own hearts and he says, I am found lacking. When we look at the law, we say, oh, wretched man that I am. Who can discern his own errors? And just practically, I think this is part of our scriptural intake. Oftentimes we cannot discern our own errors. We need one another. 
We need the power of the Spirit that is speaking through the saints in our lives to say, hey, I see this in your life, this pattern. As I'm reading the Scriptures and as we're reading the Scriptures together, I'm seeing this pattern. What's going on? We often cannot discern our own errors. We need one another. But he says, who can discern his own errors? He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is an amazing word, declare. Because he doesn't say, well, I'll be good enough and then I'll be innocent from hidden faults. That I'll work really hard and I'll figure them out and then I'll be innocent of them. He says, declare me innocent. There is only one who can declare innocent. There is no category in scripture for an earned innocence. If you're innocent before God, it's because he declared you to be innocent through the death of his son. His son, who is the word personified, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only son of the father. David says, I need something outside of myself. And this is the reality for each of us this morning. We need to be declared innocent from hidden faults. We need to be kept back from presumptuous sins. We need the Lord's power. We need the Spirit working in us. We need the Scriptures and the Spirit and the saints as we work together to put sin to death and to love the Scriptures. But look what he says in verse 13. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. If you're here this morning and you are maybe just coming in for the first time or you've never heard anything like this, the reality for each person is that we are born apart from God. We are born sinners. That sin is anything we think, say, or do that separates us from God. And that we have no way of making ourselves right with God. There's nothing that we can do to declare ourselves innocent. There's not enough good works to outweigh our bad works that we are broken beyond repair. Yet Jesus lived a perfect life and he accomplished all righteousness and he died to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose again, securing eternal life for us. And his death is a declaration, not just that we are innocent, but that we are holy if we are in him. And so David says, declare me innocent. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And he closes here with this plea. And this is our plea as we look to the scriptures. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know the way that we uh, can ensure that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart, just a very practical way, are acceptable in God's sight? If they're his words. If they're his words in our mouth and his words that are being meditated upon in our hearts. This is just an honest plea. It's just a prayer of repentance. It's saying, God... Help me. It's a plea that I I think is helpful for us as we approach the scriptures anytime. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. But the, the beautiful picture here is this word acceptable, it's sacrifice language. It's the idea of being accepted by God. And we know that we're not accepted by God based off of our good works, based off of anything that we've done. We're accepted by God based off the sacrifice of Christ if we're in him. And so our words and our meditations are acceptable if we are in him. And he can be trusted because he is our rock, verse 14 says, and our redeemer. And so in closing, if, if you want just the bottom line, the too long, didn't read, why build habits of scriptural intake? Why should we meditate on the scriptures why should we read them why should we study them why should we pour over them why should we memorize them why should we hide them in our hearts because like peter said where else would we go (coughs) where else would we go he has the words of eternal life 
and they have communicated to us his glory for our joy. Let's pray. Our God, we see from this psalm of David that it is, it's impossible to plumb the depths of how perfect your word is. It's impossible to plumb the depths of how good and how right and how helpful your word is in our lives. It's impossible to communicate the necessity of the word in our lives. And Lord, we even acknowledge this morning that if we, if we take a while and think about it, much of our anxieties and much of our fears and much of our outbursts of anger and much of our lack of faith is because we haven't been communing with you in your word. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would, you would remind us, remind us of the glory that is found in your word, not because of the words on the page, but because of who their author is. Lord, we trust that your word is efficient, that it does accomplish the task that you set out for it. And so this morning, I pray and I trust that through your word, not through anything that I have said, but through your word, you have encouraged the saints. Lord, that you have convicted the sinner. Lord, that in your word, that if we are in Christ, we find satisfaction, joy, delight in the glory of yourself that is proclaimed there. Lord, we pray that as we go out, Lord, that we would, we would read and we would study and we would memorize and we would have the word in front of us and on our lips as we discuss and as we have lunch and as we come into contact with people this week, not as a sense of guilt, because, but because you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Who else would we cling to? Who else's words provide the comfort that you provide? Who else's promises never fail? So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the word that you've given to us. Lord, remind us this week that the scriptures proclaim your glory for our joy and help us to be glad in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.